0: Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues.
1: Good afternoon. Welcome to our AI event on the future of America in space. America in 2021 seems to be interested and active in space to a degree not seen since the space race with the Soviet Union. Private firms such as SpaceX and Blue Origin have emerged as new pioneers of space exploration, and many politicians have begun calling for us to return to the moon and finally put a human on Mars, an American. And the U.S. is not alone. Countries ranging from China to the United Arab Emirates have developed space programs as well. Overall, Humanity appears ready to resume its exploration of outer space, which opens many questions. Among them, what are the roles of both private companies and NASA in driving this exploration? And what new opportunities and challenges will we uncover as we delve further into the final frontier? And will those opportunities be profitable? I'm excited to discuss these questions with today's panel, which I will now introduce. Tim Ferdholz is a senior reporter at Quartz, where he covers space, the economy, and geopolitics. He's authored the excellent 2018 book, rocket billionaires, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and the new space race. Sarah Seeger is a professor of planetary science and physics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where she's known for her research on extrasolar planets. She's the author of the 2020 memoir, also excellent, "The smallest lights in the universe. Stan Voiger is a resident scholar in economic policy studies here at AEI, as well as a visiting lecturer of economics at Harvard University. And Matt Weinserall is a Joseph and Jacqueline Elbing Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School, as well as the Research Associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He has recently launched a set of research projects focusing on the commercialization of the space sector and its economic implications. One last thing before we begin. We'll be doing a Q&A at the end of the event. So please, please, please submit your questions on Twitter with the hashtag uh, #AskAEIEcon. And there are also links and email addresses to ask questions on the event page. So with that, uh, we will get started. Uh, Let me start with, uh, with Sarah. Is this renewal of interest that I mentioned in the intro into space, is this a permanent thing? Are we entering a true space age as the optimists of the 1960s envisioned? We've sort of been here before and we lost interest. Are we gonna stay interested in space in all its many aspects?
0: Well, I have to say yes, because that's my whole field of research, <laughs> Good, but it seems like we are because it's just as everything got smaller and cheaper, like the amount of capability in our phones today compared to at the beginning of the space race is just tremendous. And that in part is also fueling this cheaper and more accessible space for us, for all of us.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, wh- why did we lose interest?
0: Well, I don't know if we lost interest, but it's like the shiny new thing do it, it's really hard. Also all wrapped up initially in the Cold War and we just had less of a motivation to continue to pursue.
1: Uh, certainly we lost interest in sort of the manned aspect of exploration, but that's that's not it. We've been doing a lot of other things over the past 50 years, other than we may have not been going to the moon or Mars, but we've still been exploring space, which is kind of what you know- Yes, yes. You your life to. The
0: human factor adds just a whole lot of risk. You know, it's it's true that our, our Mars rover landing in the last couple of days was just absolutely fantastic, like perfect, really. But when you add humans to the equation, you know, no one wants to be responsible for something to go wrong with the person there, because that usually is fatal. So it's just my personal opinion that the cost is just t- too high, typically, you know, when we put humans in the equation.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim, what is driving this sort of renewal of activity? Is it commerce, exploration, national pride, national security national security some combination of all of the above.
2: I mean the the correct and easy answer is all of the above. but what we've seen in the last two decades has been an increased emphasis on the economic potential of space. We saw at the turn of the century, the tech boom laid out a lot of trends that have made this possible, like the small, uh, powerful computers and batteries in our cell phones is at the heart of a lot of what's happening in space now. But we saw people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos make a lot of money and believing uh, in the future of space invested there, both with the idea of driving down the cost of access to space. And it's that dynamic that has reawakened commercial interest in space, and new scientific potential. Uh, But you can't ignore the geopolitics. I think in particular, China's ambitious space agenda has a lot of people in the strategic national security community saying we need to make sure that the U.S. has those same capabilities. And it also raises questions about, you know, if China thinks economic success is possible in space, what can U.S. companies do there? So I think all of these things are sort of interacting and, and driving each other on. Does the fact, uh, and
1: anybody can answer this, does the fact that China isn't going away, apparently their interest in space probably isn't going away. So that sort of argues that America's interest in space and all these many dimensions is really going to be a, a long term factor in American policy and, you know, whether it's government or American business.
3: Yeah, I I guess I'll just jump in. I absolutely think that that rivalry, both both economic and geopolitical, is going to drive a lot of activity in space. I think we all also have some, I think, natural wariness about the directions in which that might head, right? I mean, space is, we've always wanted space to be a non-militarized zone, to be a zone of cooperation, and it has been that in many wonderful ways for the last 50 years. And so I think there's some nervousness about where that might go. Um, but I think you're absolutely right, Jim. It's a huge driver of spending and of uh, competition. Uh,
1: Sarah, uh, as far as
3: other nations on the, uh, you know,
1: as exploring and doing science, is that is that is that their focus, or for some of these other countries, is it more sort of what the U.S. was like in the 1960s, where a lot of it was driven by sort of, if not geopolitics, and then as a source of national pride? Are they are they do they want to do science?
0: I think it depends on which country. I mean, surely for many countries, civilian space science is like the tip of the iceberg, You know, where the other part of the iceberg, we don't know what's going on. And so they like to showcase their prowess. There are though many, many countries now that because of the revolution in very small satellites, like namely CubeSats, that have now standardized parts that are cheaper than having to make everything custom, it's enabled all kinds of countries be able to go to space to try to do science like Ecuador or Vietnam or places you normally wouldn't think of as spacefaring nations. And even on a larger scale, it's not kind of there yet. And it's, it's not just the companies you mentioned, but it's Rocket Lab wanting, you know, planning to go to Venus. It's Virgin Orbit, who you saw with that spectacular launch off the airplane that want to next go to Mars or Venus, and that will enable countries to, to literally buy those launch services and be able to do more science than they ever could.
1: Do we, and anyone can answer this, do we get a sense that Americans are interested in space? I'm sort of assuming that I'm interested and everybody sort of in this panel is at one degree, you know, fairly interested. Uh, are America, I mean, how interested were they back in the 60s, were they, were they, were in the 60s, were they very interested in going to the moon or was it just, or was really wrapped up in that Cold War rivalry?
2: I think historically speaking, we sometimes overstate the uh, public uh, response to the Apollo program. I think most of the time there was general approval, but this was also during the Vietnam War, the War on Poverty, the Civil Rights Movement. You know, the American public was thinking about a lot of different things. I think today, yes, the American public is very interested in space. We saw with the Perseverance landing, we've seen with SpaceX's televised first, whether it's the Falcon Heavy or their reusable rockets or the commercial crew flights this year. You know, People are excited about space. But I think an interesting thing to talk about for advocates of doing more activity in space is there's also a reluctance or a suspicion of more private actors going up there. We're going to see the first uh, space tourism mission to the International Space Station this year uh, on a SpaceX Crew Dragon. Um, and. I think that NASA sees this as sort of priming the pump for a future where private actors do more and NASA can use its resources to focus on other things. But I think the public sees super wealthy people going to a national laboratory in space and is maybe not sure that's the right balance of interest. So I think it's worth talking about, you know, how we explain to people that private sector activity in space, even if it first seems like a holiday for the super wealthy, will have big uh, benefits for everybody through the economy. I, I do wonder. I, sorry,
4: I, I do wonder how much of the interest is driven by by firsts. You know, like the 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 first time uh, we landed on the moon. The you know the first time uh, uh, any object made it to to Mars. The first time you make a uh, you know the first time you use GPS. Right, those those things are uh th- those things are more important I think to 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 to, to most to most voters than uh, than necessarily the ongoing developments, the ongoing policy debates. And I, I do think that that Tim is right right It was never at the center of of political debate outside those uh, those specific moments. there was not an ongoing, uh, level of interest as high as we saw in the Vietnam War, as we saw just in the general state of the economy, and so I think it's 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 very easy to set your expectations very high if you uh, like you uh, uh, James Bethencook is, are obsessed with building your own generationship. <laughs> I, I don't think that's a level of interest that you can expect from uh, from the median voter, sort of uh, on an ongoing basis.
0: You know, despite uh, all this enthusiasm, Jim and everyone, we still see you know, some pushback and it's fair pushback that we are spending billions of dollars going to Mars and we're struggling here. Maybe not us here, but lots of people because of the pandemic now you've been out of work and there's a lot of bad things happening. So we try to explain why we're still exploring space even amidst everything going on.
1: And and certainly that was a big issue in the 1960s at the exact exact moment uh, as we were uh, ending the Apollo program. Uh, or we're, we're finally meeting that goal, that there was uh, a tremendous amount of concern that it was uh, uh, that it was a huge uh, waste of money. It was a diversion of resources. That issue has not gone away.
3: Yeah. Although I, I'll just jump in with a slightly contrary opinion, maybe, which is that I think it's absolutely right. Of course, that public support dropped off right away after Apollo. And you really saw that in the funding to NASA. I guess one of the twists I see is that very much to, to Tim's point about, you know, the billionaires or the super wealthy driving sort of a next era. I think that's an important tipping point in the sense that now there are people who are going to space not for some public interest, not because the government is excited to send them there for geopolitical reasons, but because they want to go. And of course, at first that's going to be people with a tremendous amount of disposable income, but like many frontier technologies, eventually we do hope that that becomes a more general purpose technology and experience. And I I guess I'm optimistic that that's going to continue driving this interest that you're starting with. Jim. I mean, a big advantage is, am
4: sorry, go ahead.
0: I I just want to give, I guess, a pushback or a question to the economists um, here. And that is, you know, is there a sustainable business for them in space or will they continue to rely on the government and, you know, the taxpayer's dollars, at least, you know, initially they're very clever, you know, get the contract to go to the space station, get the contract to do this or that. And that's how they're, you know, funding their, their way eventually to build the ship that goes to Mars. So I was just wondering if you think there's ever a sustainable way.
1: Well, that's that's a, that's a, that's an excellent leaping off point to that uh, uh, that area. Certainly, you know, as I've been sort of doing a lot of reading lately about sort of what the visions of space from the from the 1960s that there was a, certainly a huge economic component that they thought there was going to be a thriving space economy, both in near Earth orbit, uh, on other planets. It wasn't just about exploration. It certainly just wasn't about the military. So, do we see uh, to Sarah's question? Is there what is that economic model? How big is it? And are those, and will people at some point in the near future see new benefits uh, from this new uh, age of space exploration, space industry? Start with uh, Matt. And you've done a lot of work on that.
3: Well, yeah, that is the central question. So I'm glad glad we're getting to it. I mean, the the big gap in all of the enthusiasm or between enthusiasm and reality has been where's the demand? Like, why, why are we going up there? Who's paying for this other than the government? And that question is, to be perfectly candid, not answered. I mean, we do not have a solid answer to that. We have some things people have always hoped will become answers: um, manufacturing in space, or you know, the um, extraction use of space resources. Tourism, of course, is the one that we've already mentioned. I think the, you know, when I think about an economy, the, the one thing that I think is important to realize is that economy is just people interacting. And so part of the reason we haven't had a space economy in space. Is because we don't have people in space. Like everything we do in space is for the people and almost all the people are on Earth. So it's not surprising that we haven't gotten the sort of flourishing that we had the drawings of in the 60s and 70s. And so
4: to the extent that there is a space economy, it's mostly satellite-based, right? is exactly. providing services on Earth, uh, which, you know, I mean, and so there, you know, it, does that count as a space economy? I mean, say exactly. it does, but...
0: Well, well uh, the perfect example unfolding right in front of us is Starlink, SpaceX's Starlink yeah. and Amazon and... One web and everything. So we'll see, right? Maybe that, Matt, maybe that will be it.
3: Well, and you know, why is SpaceX getting into Starlink? I mean, at least the story that I believe is that it's partly because they really can't get enough money in the launch market to fund the dreams of settling Mars. There's a huge pile of money to go after in satellite internet and telecommunications. And so it's a play for. Funding their broader ambitions, and if we and really don't do, forget reti- yeah.
0: it's developing the capability they'll need on Mars. They'll have to right. put a lot of satellites up around Mars so they can communicate with each other and back to Earth.
3: Yeah. So my hope is if we routinely start sending people up there for a few hours, for a few days, for a few weeks, eventually, then then you start to get that economy and that demand just organically because it's people. Does anything that Matt mentioned sound like, I don't know, the killer app
1: for the space economy? Is it really, if you're talking about to creating a multi-trillion dollar space economy. Is space tourism that, that killer app or w- what is?
2: I spend a lot of my day-to-day talking to uh, entrepreneurs and VCs in Silicon Valley who are trying to solve this very specific question. And I think the answer right now is we don't know. Uh, I think if you want to draw analogies to the commercialization of another sort of publicly created technology, you know, from the internet, going from the defense department to the, you know, commercial ecosystem we have today, we're still very early on the creation of platforms where if you want to do business in space, you really have to have a lot of domain-specific space knowledge right now. If you want to run a satellite company? And it's hard for a random business to use that data Uh, without a lot of training. So a big challenge in the economy is going to be making people aware of and interested in leveraging space stuff. So I think satellites and remote sensing are gonna be the biggest areas going forward. And then when you think about how to make uh, that next jump to a more aspirational science fiction space economy, I think the answer is gonna be in satellite servicing. Um, A big problem right now is space traffic management. And in the years ahead, there's only going to be thousands and thousands of more satellites launched. And as well as, you know, rules, uh, best practices, international agreements about how to deal with that, there's also going to be, and there already are, businesses coming up to figure out how to do work on those. And, you know, that's the kind of virtuous cycle that I think Matt is talking about when you want to see, you know, a new ecosystem, a new economy develop.
1: As far as other sectors, whether it's manufacturing. I feel like if I bring up asteroid mining, you know, people will really think I'm off into science fiction, but uh, things like manufacturing or even asteroid mining, are those are those things which are our 21st century aspirations or, or, or not?
0: You no, know, asteroid mining, I love that topic. And initially <laughs> I was on the board of planetary resources. How hey, you all know they're no longer with us. I think, I feel like investors perhaps aren't comfortable with like a decades long investment, right? Like imagine if you have to invest for 40 years, you might not even be around 40 years later. But the reality is, you know, for space science, you know, we know how to get to an asteroid. We know how to land on asteroids, at least the Japanese landed. We know how to bring material back. NASA right now has OSIRIS-REx on its way back here. That scooped up a tiny amount of, of an asteroid. So we actually can put all the components together. We don't know how to drill on the asteroid. We don't know how to chemically sort the material we need to bring back to Earth. But if you want a nitty-gritty, we actually know how to get the job done, at least 90% of it. But it's just oh. so far away that people don't want to really
4: and I do think, Red, we we have a bunch of pretty large companies now that for years did not make a, a profit. And so there is, I do think there is that that patience. And you I don't know. I so I I don't know, maybe Tim or Matt can talk about that. But you, I, I'm surprised that that would be the obstacle.
2: Well, I would say there's an old aphorism in Silicon Valley that is don't mistake a technology for a business plan. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of things that we can do that aren't actually going to return a profit. And when we think about companies that grow for a long time without profitability, profitability they're companies that are growing. And there was um, a clear
4: path to profitability. Yeah. Sure.
2: So, you know, I think it's very interesting to think about where are we going to find that killer app again. When we talk about in-space manufacturing, you know, it would be really great if Merck would come out and say, hey, we finally figured out how to crystallize the COVID cure and it can only be done in zero G. But so far, we haven't found that. You know, there's a company called Made in Space. that's very excited about its fiber optic cables. There's a lot of work on the ISS on this. But we haven't found that real added value yet. And maybe it's a question of economies of scale. And that's why the reusable rockets are such an emphasis for these people, because that's how you lower that access cost to do those things. But it's still an open question, I think.
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll just build on that. Tim, you said that so well. And uh, it's true that even back in the 60s and 70s, people were saying, well, what could we manufacture in space that we could only manufacture in zero gravity? So we've been looking for that killer manufactured product for decades. The one thing I'll mention to Sarah's point about where do you get the patient capital? That's like a real question. Um, NASA. Right. Exactly. Right. So VCs don't have it typically. NASA used to have it. Maybe they still do, although politics get in the way. The billionaires, right? I mean, that's the most obvious answer is that Bezos and Musk, I think both are willing to put 50 years of, you know, patience into this. But there has been some innovation in even quite recently in the financing side of space, which I think is pretty exciting, whether it's SPACs or roll-ups or now there's a space ETF. So you can see that like the finance sector is trying to figure out how to solve some of that, those problems, I think. Sarah,
1: are you overall comfortable with the uh, sort of the privatization of, uh, of space and space launches and, and perhaps a changing mission for NASA?
0: Absolutely. Even more than comfortable, just thrilled. Because what, the, what these companies are doing, they're actually bringing the cost down to go to space because as we've just talked about, they have to for their own sustainable business. And so I just always smile when I remember a mission I just stepped down from a leadership role on. It's an MIT-led NASA mission called TESS, like the girl's name. It's a planet hunting telescope. And we find literally 50 new planet candidates every month. That's like 50 new worlds a month out there. And TESS, by the way, we launched on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket, but the test mission was like this big in the ferry and that was this big. We had so much extra space. It would be like having a giant suitcase inside a school bus. All that extra space because it was cheaper. Falcon 9 um, rocket was still cheaper than whatever else was available that was even maybe even smaller. So they're bringing the cost down. And this whole idea of sending a small rocket to Venus or Mars, it'll change the scope of how space science operates. Because right now we spend billions of dollars and don't go very often with something that everyone has a part of. But if we can send small focus missions more frequently, it'll change the game. So we're, yeah, I can speak for myself and perhaps others happy.
1: So And, and so the mission for, for NASA, since we're, you know, we're at a think tank, supposed to be thinking about public policy. So the mission for NASA should be what over the next generation and what way is that different than it's the mission over the past you know 20 years
0: okay well i'll just speak from my own opinion mm-hmm. you know rather than what nasa should or is doing but you know when you think about the past and other people here probably read more and no more about it than me but you hear how you know nasa was it wasn't like run by 20 year olds but they were very young people you know taking a lot of risks and we don't really see that as much now in NASA. It's kind of more conservative. Everything has to work. Nobody wants to see anything kind of go wrong. So opening it up to letting the private companies, you know, take on part of this is kind of allowing more risk and more focused, innovative ideas to flourish. So it's very complimentary, actually.
4: Are, are you are, are you, and, and the other panelists, are you worried that as as more parties get involved, the sort of peaceful nature of the various projects uh, are are, uh, are are in jeopardy, right? If you have more companies from different countries competing, uh, you, you'll you'll get fights over, you know, who gets to tax them. Uh, if you have once you start bringing. The, the output of your asteroid mining efforts, you'll get fights over, you know, over tariffs and, <laughs> and whatnot. If you, and obviously there'll be a national security dimension to too much of this. And so you'll get this, this temptation to to become very protectionist and say, look, uh, you know, only U.S. Uh, shielded asteroid mining ships are, are allowed to deliver the products of asteroid mining to the United States, you're not allowed to use the proceeds of Chinese mine. Are, are you worried that cre- creating this private space economy will lead to those kinds of tensions and will, will ultimately backfire? Matt, what do you think?
3: Uh, I guess I'm optimistic in the following sense. I think that uh, there's a lot of shared interest in capturing the surplus that can be had by, you know, successfully building the space economy. And so there's a lot of incentive for people to get around the table and figure it out. That's not to say that they've done it yet. So I think that we have a lot of work to do in bolstering the international treaties that currently govern it, because most of these questions weren't really pressing in 1967 (laughs) when we got the Outer Space Treaty. So so I think you're absolutely right. Property rights, figuring that out, figuring out taxation, even and but m- much less rule of law. All this kind of stuff does need to be figured out. But I think people will try to pretty hard to do it. Tim, do you think the uh, the private space industry can withstand
1: failure, very devastating loss of life, other kinds of failure? Is that or are they in it sort of for the long term? And you know, if uh, if there's a disaster, well, they'll just that's just the cost of doing business, and they will just plow forward.
2: Well, unfortunately, I fear we will find out the answer to this sometime in the years ahead. Um, I think it's a main reason that Elon Musk has kept SpaceX private and that Jeff Bezos won't take Blue Origin public for a long time. Um, We're going to be entering interesting territory when Virgin Galactic starts doing uh, regular suborbital tourist service. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's going to be like any other major transportation industry, whether it's airlines, trains, you know, cruise ships, there's gonna be really tragic disasters that are gonna turn out to be caused by human error or design error. And you know, people are gonna to have to just keep doing the calculus of is this worth it? Is the experience worth this risk? Is the profit worth this risk? And uh, eventually, you know, right now, a lot of this is essentially not regulated. It's indemnified by law, you're at your own risk but there is gonna come a point where there will be safety rules in space, and that's gonna be a whole public policy conversation. Um, so you know, right now, I think as Sarah very accurately pointed out, NASA is using you know, private companies to outsource risk-taking because uh, NASA really can't do that kind of risk-taking anymore for a lot of political and cultural reasons. And that same cycle will happen with the private space sector, but it's gonna take you know decades. Should NASA be building rockets at all? I think there's a good argument that NASA hasn't been building rockets for a while. Um, You know, the traditional model of NASA sort of making the requirements and outsourcing them to a private company has not succeeded in the last several decades when it comes to just launch vehicles. Um, And so I think there are a lot of people at NASA who think, you know, this is something we should outsource so we could work on a harder problem. If you think about what SpaceX has done, uh, you know, they've done Mercury, they've done Gemini, they're working on Apollo, and NASA already did all that. And so maybe they have other things to focus on.
3: And I would just add, it's not about rockets per se, but it actually goes back to an earlier question, and, and also Sarah's answer to it, which is, you know, what should NASA be doing? I think NASA can provide really great sort of seed capital, in some sense, or first customer access to a lot of space startups. So, you know, that is a, a a place they can plug some gaps in the space ecosystem.
0: And just back to science for a moment, NASA still plays a really critical role because there's some big, huge questions that are way out of the price range of the private companies, or at least what they're willing to invest in.
2: And I think it's worth talking about this in context of the debate over the Artemis program right now. Uh, When we talk about a lot of the success of private space companies, SpaceX in particular, but also Northrop Grumman, we're talking about them doing a service for NASA and the International Space Station. Um, And that worked out for them because flying to the International Space Station is analogous to launching satellites, which is an actual business. And, you know, we have a little previous experience of flying people into low Earth orbit for space tourism. So now we're trying to take this same model to the moon where we're going to pay private companies to perhaps land people with a human lander system, uh, to fly supplies to the moon, to do all this stuff. And I think especially for people who advocate more private activity in space, it's worth asking, are these companies gonna have non-NASA customers who want them to fly payloads to the moon or people to the moon? Uh, And I think initially the answer is probably no. Um, at least for the next five to 10 years. And I think that is a hard question for people who look at what commercial crew has been so successful at doing and say, can we do this on the moon? I'm not sure who the other purchases are. Now, maybe it's the UAE. Maybe it's other nations who want who have new space programs and want to do stuff. There are ideas for this. But I think it behooves people who think that the private sector is going to do more in space to sort of ask those tough questions about what the next sort of beyond LEO business model is going to be.
4: Well, this is what Matt was saying earlier, right? You need a moon resort before the before the, you can diversify your, your revenue sources there.
2: Are we
1: getting back to the moon anytime soon? I think some people think we are. Some politicians uh, seem to be suggesting it's
2: very soon. Uh, are we? I think especially now that the Trump administration is over, we can all stop pretending that anyone's going to land on the moon in 2024. I think right now we're at a really interesting inflection point where maybe 2028, maybe 2026, it's not clear how lawmakers feel about accelerating that timing or the priorities. And also we've had a big pandemic and a recession that maybe will change spending priorities. But I do think that the smaller precursor programs, particularly the commercial lunar payload services, which is hiring private companies to send robots to the moon in the years ahead. I think those missions will go off. And if they succeed, they will help sort of get the ball rolling forward. Um, But I think we're still, there's a lot of open questions about what the Biden administration's approach to civil space policy, commercial space policy, national security space policy will be, and we just don't know yet.
1: Is there a reason to go back to the moon that is uh, not just national pride? That there is that but there is. There's no. About, there's no COVID on the moon. That's a fact. Uh, uh, is, there, is there? I mean, if you're trying to sell this to policymakers, or policymakers are trying to sell the voters that we should, yes, we need to go to the moon, or we need. To, what What is the case? What is the case that uh, someone selling this idea would make, other than let's go do the you know the case of the moon? Let's go do what we did. 50 years ago and let's go do it again. That doesn't seem like a very powerful case and not particularly interesting. I mean, what's What's interesting and exciting about going back to the moon?
3: So many many Mars advocates see it as a stepping stone uh, in a number of ways. So it's a lot shorter and in some ways easier to get to the moon. Uh, you can practice some of the things that you might wanna do on Mars uh, on the moon. Of course, it's a different environment. So. How much you learn is up for debate, I guess I would say, but uh, certainly the idea of getting down and back up from the surface, mining resources, living on the surface for a while, those are all things that we can practice on the moon in a much lower risk sense, I guess, than going all the way to Mars and lower cost. So even if your goal is not the moon, but the Mars, that's one argument that's often made.
0: Jim, do you buy that argument? Because you look very skeptical. Uh
2: you know, I think there are a number of reasons to go to the moon. Um, I think a top one previously has been good jobs in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, I'm not sure that will continue to be the reason going forward, but I think one obvious one is water. Um, the confirmation of water ice on the moon is still like a 12-year-old fact. I think scientists and Sarah, maybe you can speak to this, feel like there are things we can learn from that water. I know there's interest in doing like radio telescope observations from the far side of the moon. So there's a lot of scientific work that could be done. Um, With the water, there are a lot of people who think harvesting that water could be an enabler for businesses in low Earth orbit for longer term stays on the moon. Um, But I think ultimately it's going to be geopolitics. Uh, If China is serious about landing people on the moon and continues to head in that direction, I don't think it will be tenable for U.S. leadership to say, go ahead, we don't care anymore. Um, and, And so I think that will be a major driver going forward alongside the ambitions of the private space sector, which wants to go to the moon, whether or not it has a government customer, I think it would take any customer to go there.
0: Yeah, I'd like to build on what Tim and Matt said, because everything they said, I do agree with at some level, like the moon's a good practice place, the scientists still have a list of things they'd like to do on the moon. But when you ask yourself, what about Mars going right to Mars? The scientists would be, wow, just way more excited. And you could ask, is the moon really training ground when it doesn't train for some of the critical things? Like we've heard people talk about perhaps you wanna send astronauts to Mars and back without landing. Cause that would, you know, fix one of the, that would help sort through one of the problems just as long duration in space. So I feel like I agree with everything you say but there's this equally strong argument for just going to Mars.
2: I guess the, I mean, I definitely am staying out of any moon Mars fights. I'm merely a reporter, but I am curious. The one thing that I think makes sense pragmatically for the moon is it's cheaper. Um, And it might be easier to sell that way. And private companies maybe will be more likely to throw in to go to the moon rather than Mars. How much should that calculus matter when we're talking about setting the direction for space policy?
0: I mean, I feel like if you had a good plan, it would be good. But if you're going to go to the moon and it just keeps getting more and more expensive, you've sort of taken a big distraction for nothing. But I do agree, moon is closer. It's a lot easier. And there's still a lot of incentive because we haven't been there in so long.
1: Sarah, you, you mentioned uh, uh, the using the moon to explore space, maybe build a big telescope on the moon. Is that is that something astronomers yeah. talk about? As think Matt can do? actually
0: mentioned that. But yes, oh, yeah. it was actually I can't Matt or Tim or both maybe, but it was, it's the far side of the moon, you know, the sort of dream is you could put a giant radio telescope there and you'd be blocking, you know, on our planet earth here, it's very noisy for radio. I mean, there's some narrow frequencies we've still maintained for science. There's some places like in the heart of Australia that are radio quiet, but on the whole, it's just messy. And so that's kind of one of the dreams is to go there. As far as other telescopes are concerned, like visible wavelength, moon isn't that great it's very dusty, you know, all that regolith would just mess things up. And yeah, but for radio astronomy, it's it's exciting.
2: And one interesting wrinkle to add to that radio astronomy on the moon question is that's where we're going to see science really intersect with geopolitics because under the current regime of, of lunar laws, we understand it, the main thing is you can't interfere with what someone is already doing there. So the first country to go lay out its radio telescope on a high mountain on the far side of the moon is gonna be there and no one else can land. And is that gonna be effectively a land grab on the moon? How will the countries that don't own that radio telescope react? And so that's why e- even as we talk about this, it's so important to sort of think about like with the Artemis Accords launched under the last administration, what are the rules of the road gonna be if we start doing these scientific or commercial projects?
3: And and who is around the table signing those, right? I mean, the absence of China from the absence of cooperation between China and the U.S. on many of these space agreements is troubling in exactly that direction. That Tim is going.
4: And so, if we think that the the main driver of, of dramatic expansion of, of of at least some activity is precisely this kind of geopolitical conflict between the U.S. and China, will will these kinds of potential conflicts not drive more activity and you know be a stimulus for the for the sector? Right. If if ultimately the the main reason. Uh, why policymakers care is because they want to outcompete China, uh, just like they outcompeted the Soviet Union. Not for any you know directly tangible military advantage necessarily, but just to do better than the opponent. Isn't that exactly the dynamic we we should want?
2: Well, I did an interview for the uh, the Perseverance landing, which also had UAE and China's first Mars missions. And one uh, interesting thing that came of this from a guy named Pete Gerritsen, who's a fellow at the American. Foreign, an American foreign policy think tank whose name I can't quite remember right now. Basically, he said the U.S. still has this flags and footprints mentality where we feel like as long as we do something symbolically big and good, that's fine. Whereas China appears to be investing much more cumulatively and steadily going forward. And so I think the one fear would be if the U.S. is mainly investing in symbolic missions and China's missions are better poised for economic gains, then maybe we will have made a mistake in, in emphasizing the wrong things. But that's maybe a nuanced point about future space investment.
4: do you think that's really true? Because this is like, you know, this is what the some of the foreign policy types say about China on Earth as well, right? Oh, and they're going to buy a bunch of r- roads in rural Pakistan. And before you know it, they control the Earth. Well, uh, maybe
2: it's like the Russia's Busan or the Soviet Union's okay. Busan rocket, where one country is tricking the other into investing in, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, a big white elephant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's very hard to tell what okay. China is
1: doing internally. <laughs> okay. But it sounds like it's just—it's not just the United States and China that oh, no. that given, that given the dropping costs, everybody sees an opportunity out there, and they don't left behind. That that again, that that you know, what's the difference between now and the 1960s? That's certainly a major difference and perhaps creates some sort of self-sustaining dynamic um, that this, this, will be a, this will be forever a part of what countries do, I hope. Uh, Sarah, you mentioned uh, a bit earlier at the very beginning about, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, sort of the manned aspect of all this. Does someone like you, a scientist, you're interested in exploration, the fact that we focus a lot on the, the manned aspect of it does create some risk. Uh, we also mentioned that with the private sector uh, earlier. I wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit. I mean, would you prefer this all just be done by robots and satellites and-
0: Well, just like everyone else, I love the idea of people going to Mars. I myself don't wanna go, I don't know about all of you, but I just love the idea of boots on Mars. So I'm always a big supporter of that. But in terms of science, you know, we still have a lot we can do without people. You know, we would really like people to go look at the rocks, look at things, do some investigation there. But all the things we have right now, my main interest is the planet Venus. And we're on this big kind of tangent in this, what used to be a ridiculously crazy idea that there could be life, like microbial type life floating around in the Venus clouds. So to sort of move that idea forward, you know, we don't need people. Well, we can't really have people go to Venus because yeah. <laughs> It's hot at the surface and the clouds are just nasty, but there's a lot we can do without people. So I think we still have a, a lot we can do and it's cheaper and easier.
1: What is the latest thinking about Venus and uh, life in the atmosphere?
0: Well, I was um, on the team that made a big announcement last fall on phosphine on Venus, which is a gas that on earth is only produced either by us humans or by bacteria in oxygen-free environments. So we, there's been a lot of controversy on this because it's looking for the needle in the haystack, so to speak. And the data is very, um, Venus is so, so bright. If you see it in the night sky, if you look, if it's not, if you can see it in the night sky, it's incredibly bright. And ironically, it's quite hard to study with our very big telescopes. It's almost too bright, too spatially resolved, too big. So it's very hard to find the signal. And there's been a lot of pushback. People have looked at our data and said they don't see phosphine. Other people have looked at our data and said, sorry, some you have looked at the data and don't see a signal. Other people have looked at the data see a signal, but claim it's not phosphine, it's another gas, sulfur dioxide. So it's still a bit controversial, but it has shone a light back on Venus. And there've been many people who for for a long time have been very enthusiastic about going back to Venus. You know, we something like 20 missions went to Venus up until about the early eighties, either flyby or landers. And after that, there's been three and none of them have gone inside the atmosphere. So we haven't truly gone down into the Venus atmosphere in four decades or something. So it is really time to go back and we actually have a small team, like a hand-picked team and we're privately funded to not send a mission there yet, but we're actually um, designing a mission, a series of missions that could go to Venus and look for signs of life or maybe even life itself in the atmosphere. And we are actually teaming up with Rocket Lab who are going to Venus, they're going to, going to launch, planning to launch in 2023 on a privately funded mission to go to Venus. We're helping with the science payload on that mission.
1: There's been a lot, I mean, there's been a lot of news we've been finding, we've been finding all these, we've been finding planets. You mentioned uh, the Venus news. Is all of that together, do you think creating, and everyone can answer this, part of the sort of momentum that we might see more funding for this kind of thing in the future, um, even beyond sort of the, the, the space economy and global uh, uh Politics that there's just a lot exciting going on on the science side of things.
0: I mean, there kind of always has been in a way and we still see ourselves as a, a luxury science, like a luxury field. And we also have this phrase, you know, all ships rise with the rising tide. So I won't say we're happy, but we sort of deal with, we get the sort of small slice of the pie. But think about Hubble, you know, the Hubble Space Telescope, it's, it's a household name. And so I feel like, I hope anyway, that the science has always been exciting to people.
3: Yeah, I think that's been one of the bright spots right? I mean, when, if you think of people being relatively disappointed with the shuttle uh, and what it was, what it became relative to its expectations, nevertheless, some of the science it enabled, you know, thrilled people for decades. And so I, I think that that's always been a big part of what's kept us interested in space.
1: Tim, is there, is there, is there a big pro space lobby at this point in either party in Washington that you're aware of? Who's excited about it in Washington that wants to spend a lot of money?
2: Everyone. Uh, I mean, space is bipartisan um, because it is usually an opportunity to funnel billions of dollars to a private company like Boeing or Lockheed Martin, who maybe has a factory in your district. Um, But no, I mean, space is bipartisan for a lot of reasons. Uh, It's obviously the legacy of Apollo, it's national greatness, it's symbolic, it's science, which generally everybody loves. Um, And so that can sometimes backfire Uh, We saw in the last four years the discussion of the Artemis program going to the moon. And we basically had four years of NASA saying there is bipartisan support for this and NASA giving a decent amount of funding, but not quite enough to actually do the mission. And so we had four years of bipartisan support and not necessarily a lot of progress. And the same for the SLS. Uh, So it will be interesting to see if there's going to be a bipartisan consensus around a more dynamic or differently prioritized space program beyond sort of the uh, economic development of my district approach.
1: Matt, what would you like to see Washington do to enable a vibrant space economy?
3: Right, so I guess there's a couple of things. So uh, the first is, I've sort of hinted at this already, but um, this idea of let's try to understand the broader industrial ecosystem here. If you, if you There's a million roadmaps out there to the development of a space economy. Lots of think tanks put them together, companies put them together. You know, if you take the intersection of all of those, there's various things that we think need to happen. It's hard for each of those to get going. There's what we call co-innovation risk. The federal government can help fill some of those gaps by providing a little bit of funding as the first customers. So I think that's the biggest thing because it all kind of comes together. The second thing gets back to the regulation we talked about, both around risk-taking and around say property rights and taxation and things like this. We just need to know the rules of the game. We need to have these rules the kind that will facilitate risk taking uh, in some of the ways that we've already discussed. So those are the two functions.
1: Uh, we have a few. We have a few questions. Uh, actually, uh, one is sort of uh, also a question of mine. Uh, so I will. I will ask it from both their perspective and my own. My own perspective as someone who's been interested in this topic for a long time, interested in the idea there being intelligent life out there for a long time. It seems there's been more happening in that area over the past eighteen months to 2 years whether it's Oumuamua whether it's those navy pilots seeing something over the pacific zipping around their planes uh Sarah what do you make of, what do you make of those things Oumuamua the the navy pilots seeing those tic tac ufo's is that something you're interested in or you just rather just focus on what you're doing It's sort well, of the more I traditional mean,
0: it's, it's a bit of a baited question but everyone <laughs> loves the idea of ufo's right we all want to believe we want to meet aliens so but i don't think we have an answer you know we we don't well, mama, uh, I can't even pronounce it very well. You know, we don't have enough information on what that object is to say one way or the other, really. So we'll we'll wait and see.
4: What do you make of him? Has a lot of experience saying that word.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and what, what do you? make? I mean, to read about the Navy pilots and UFOs on the front page of New York Times, I don't remember that ever happening before.
0: I'm not sure why that's on the front page of New York Times. I I do try to avoid that actually, because otherwise I get too many phone calls for either interviews or just people wanting to tell me about their own UFO experience. But I think the reality is that a lot of people have seen a lot of weird phenomena and it doesn't mean it's a UFO. It just means as the U stands for it's something unexplained. And back to the asteroid, um, I'm not gonna try to say it again. I actually personally don't think it's it's a UFO. I don't think it's you know an alien artifact, but it's whatever it is, it's absolutely insane. It has to be something we've never seen before one way or the other. And we think we'll see more of those as new telescopes that survey the night sky repeatedly come online. And we're hoping we'll have spacecraft um, satellites like ready to in space, you know, ready to maneuver and go in and take a quick look. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Another question. Um, Is there is there I don't know if anyone knows about this, but I'll ask it. Is there an advantage to collecting solar power in space for terrestrial use? compared to collecting it on the ground, creating big reflectors gather and I can maybe beam it back to the ground in some fashion. Does anybody know about that and whether that's in a, whether that uh, that can be done and be economical?
2: This is uh, an interest of Jeff Bezos, the idea of collecting solar power in orbit and beaming it down to Earth. The technology is unproven. The US Air Force has launched a demonstrator satellite uh, this year to try and test it out. Uh, China reportedly is investing a lot in this. Uh, It is a very cool, utopian-sounding scheme, and I hope it works, but I think the the jury is still out on whether it is actually efficient and effective.
1: Tim, I'm going to assume you're the expert on big, utopian-sounding schemes, so I'm going to ask you another one. Uh, What is the likelihood of a space infrastructure project comparable to the Transcontinental Railroad? Uh, and what might such a project look like? Uh, I will call that the space elevator question, or perhaps the person asking that means some other kind of object. What what do you think about that?
2: Well, I guess I will say, uh, when Jeff Bezos started Blue Origin, for the first couple of years, he wasn't thinking about rockets. He was thinking about non-chemical means of going to space, like space elevators or the weird hook thing that Neil Stevenson wrote about in his book, Seven Eves. Uh, And he couldn't get those to work even with his billions of dollars and decided chemical rockets were the most efficient. Uh, in terms of like an infrastructure project on par with the Transcontinental Railroad, I think Elon Musk would tell you reusable rockets are that. I don't have the cost comparisons in my head right now, but uh, it's certainly a metaphor he used in the past. And you could think about it being, you know, creating a reliable and regular transportation system to the moon if there is a cis lunar economy. You know, it's, it's the back and forth and making it very cheap and uh, getting the economies of scale out of it, so I, I think it would be that, or to like the dreams of like a big, you know, rotating space habitat where thousands of people work. But I think all of those things are are many decades in our future.
3: Yeah, Jim, I'll just sorry, I'll just jump in because the space elevator is super fascinating. So for whoever asked that question, if that's what they were thinking about, it's you know, it's a sci-fi dream, uh, decade after decade, and it does just seem like the people who know the most roll their eyes the fastest when you mention space elevator to them so i think skepticism is warranted i would also just say for infrastructure another important thing is refueling stations in space so when we talk about water on the moon that's one of the key ideas is that you just have gas stations and so that really is almost like the trans transcontinental road or maybe our highway system and well, and with this one because this
1: is certainly every time i i talk about this issue or, or
3: tweet about it um
1: and i'm and People have been asking these questions for a long time. What is the case? So, J- to- sorry, Jim,
4: not to be too not to be too negative, but on the yeah. previous question, to oh. me, the things that are being discussed as the equivalent of the uh, transatlantic railroad sound to me more like the initial phases of of stage coaches, uh, with you know a few passengers here and there, and maybe places where you can stop. Not like you know mass transportation mechanisms that lead to the settlement of everything that's on the other end of the
3: of the railroads. Well, I think that's, yeah, that's the problem is there's no, we're not going to San Francisco or wherever the railroad was going, right? There is no other exactly. settlement we're connecting. And so that you're absolutely right. That's a big obstacle.
1: Well, let me, let me sort of hook off that, uh, that question uh, matter. Anyone else wants to answer it? How long before we believe there would be a thousand people in space? How, is that, is that possible uh, by the end of the, end of this century, by the end of it, would we have more than a thousand people? Would we have 10,000?
2: I think United Launch Alliance is on the record. This is the Boeing Lockheed Martin joint venture saying that that's feasible by like the late 2030s, early 2040s, which makes me think 2050.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure I'd be quite that optimistic even, although I'd love to be. Um, just, I mean, you're stuck like a thousand people sort of at a time in space. It's obviously impossible to say. Um, but yeah, certainly by the end of the century, I guess I would be surprised if we weren't there. That's that's quite a ways away, and there are very deep-pocketed folks with a lot of passion and a lot of technology who really do want to make that happen. So I'd be surprised if we weren't there. As Jim knows, the, the golden
2: ninety two more.
4: As Jim knows, the golden rule of, of financial punditry is is you either give a you give a number or a date, never both. <laughs>
1: never both. Never both. Let me finish off uh, uh, and. We'll just go around, uh, anyone who wants to answer this or not answer it. Uh, what's the best case for space, for doing something about it when there are certainly a lot of problems right here on earth? It's, a, it's an old question, but one that's gonna keep on being asked. I'll start with uh, uh, Dr. Seeger. What is the case for being interested in space and devoting a lot of effort to exploring it?
0: Well, it's two separate things. One is, you know, as a society, you know, should we do great art and music and exploration? And I think it's part of what it means to be human. And so I think it will always happen. And a more mundane answer I give is it is a jobs program after all, like someone else on the call said, it's you know taking money and redistributing it, which goes, trickles out.
1: Anyone else want to make a case for
3: space? I guess I'll say something related, uh, which uh, for the econ wonks who might be watching, you know, there's a lot of concern about secular stagnation, uh, which has a variety of interpretations and potential causes and solutions. But if you think about some of the things people point to, the lack of a frontier, the lack of capital intensive investment, the lack of, you know, needing to push really hard with high fixed costs. Space has all of that going for it. And so if you think about what really drives progress forward, there's a huge opportunity out there just for future human flourishing and, and experimenting with different ways of doing things that we haven't, we don't really have anymore on Earth because we lack the frontier. So that would be my case. All right.
1: Uh- Tim, Stan, any, uh, any two cents uh, or any final, any final thought on the uh, topic as we finish up?
2: Yeah, I would just say that probably never before in history has people's daily economic fortunes been linked to space like they are today. And I think that's only going to increase. Uh, I mean, whether it's GPS, um, increasingly Internet access, Uh, remote sensing, um, all of these things are making people's lives better right now and will hopefully continue to do so. Um, I think it's also still a good technology development system um, for a lot of fundamental research and science that's important aside from the science that it's actually designed to do. Um, But I think what Sarah said, kind of said it best, you know, we live in a world where there are many people who are very interested in space and some of them are hugely wealthy and powerful and they're going to be doing stuff. And it behooves the rest of us to know what they're doing and make sure it is in society's best interests. All right. Uh, Dr. Borg, any
4: final
1: thoughts before we...
4: I, I think I agree with Sarah's first uh, motivation. You know, that part of our purpose is, as as a as a, as a as a species is to explore the universe and discover its uh, it's meaning, so I think we should do that. Obviously, you know Matt's points about the side advantages of scientific progress and uh, adding to aggregate demand if that's a short, if that's something you're concerned about are helpful, but I, I think the first and foremost purpose is the generation of, of, of knowledge around
1: about, about the
4: world that surrounds us.
1: Uh, Sarah, Matt, Tim, Stan, thanks a lot for uh, on the panel and to everyone watching. Uh, thanks a lot. have a good rest of your day.
0: Thanks for listening to the
1: AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps.
2: Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.